As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Everyone to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. With me today is a gentleman who, after lots of introspection and soul searching, has decided not to join the European Super League. He was invited, but he's not joining. It's Adam Snavely, the Baron Lord Snavington. Adam, I know it was a tough, tough choice. I appreciate you making the right one in the end. And I, I really do appreciate uh, Florentino and Stan Crunky <laughs> and and the boys, as they are uh, collectively referred to in my group chat with them, for inviting me. Um, who is is a, is a royal family member, uh, I suppose, if we're using my, my full title. Um, <laughs> it makes sense that I would be invited to the European Super League. But Obviously. alas, I was forced to decline over concerns of the death of the game that we love. That's almost as convincing of a statement as the ones actually put out by some of the Premier League clubs. So So well done to you. I will also add, I wasn't really planning to go... Like straight into uh, advocating for phone hacking, but since we're here, uh, I, I compared this the Super League and the kind of establishment, the news behind it, the sort of haphazard feel to it, to um, the Turkish coup from a few years ago, and that that was all sort of like happened and like felt sort of disjointed and then inevitably collapsed. And a thing that remains from that coup is that it was all uh, all communication was via WhatsApp. So you can still read all of the messages from the WhatsApp group about what was happening and when. And I do think, to your point, there is probably a group chat somewhere with Florentino Perez and Andrea Agnelli and uh, Ed Woodward trying desperately to figure out what to do and how to stay on the same page. And I kind of need someone to make that available because I want to see it become increasingly panicked. I need that to feed my soul a little bit. At the risk of being uh, slightly PG, it's it's a little bit reminiscent of the Ku Klux Klan scene in Django Unchained, <laughs> where they're all they're all trying out the hoods for yep. the first time. <laughs> I, I can't see. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what it, that's what it, the the vibes of my the, wife just worked just all night. Dumb, <laughs> just how dumb the whole thing is. Yes. That's the vibes. Yeah, I, and that does feel about how uh, how well organized it was as well. And and now here we are. And I wish I think some of them wish that they hadn't maybe 
appeared publicly to be supporting it, but we'll get mm-hmm. into the people involved and the fallout from it later on. Right now, let's give a quick recap of where things stand. We're recording this Wednesday late morning. Uh, Chelsea and Manchester City in some form of an order. It, it gets reported as Chelsea were first or Chelsea expressed intent to withdraw first. But either way, uh, Chelsea and City were the first two Premier League clubs to announce that they would not be participating in the Super League. The other Premier League clubs, the remaining four, followed suit. Uh, this morning, early this morning, Wednesday, Atletico Madrid, Inter Milan, and AC Milan all followed suit. Juve issued a statement that said some things. I'm not quite sure what specifically. I don't know where, where Real Madrid and Barcelona are, but at this point, it does seem like the Super League is dead in the water for the time being. Could be revived down the road, but right now, it seems like it's not going anywhere. Yeah, uh, I, I think that uh, Andrea Agnelli specifically said like, oh, we could we could still we're going to go back to the drawing board on this. But, but yeah. it also feels like everybody is still so angry that they cannot possibly go back to the drawing board anytime soon. Yeah, yeah, it does feel that way. And it also seems as though maybe the people who are still involved, I won't speak for Barcelona because I don't really know what the situation is there. But it does seem sure. like Perez and Agnelli were two of the ones who were most publicly in favor of this one. Perez does the whole Radio call where he sort of seems to have lots of grandiose plans that don't quite make sense. Agnelli, as of today, was still sort of saying, like, uh, it could have been possible if the British government hadn't gotten involved. It was all the British government, those meddling kids that, uh, that did it. But I, I think where, where I wanted to start this now that we've kind of got the basics, uh, laid down is that I still see some people, a lot of American sports fans, not necessarily soccer fans, or, or even just people who are kind of vaguely generally interested in soccer, wondering why is this a big deal? Like, because it feels similar to what Major League Soccer is or what the NFL is. Like, who cares if the biggest teams want to start their own league? It means we're going to get to see all the biggest teams play consistently. So maybe not quite the MLS North American angle quite yet, but Adam, for you, why did you feel like this was a big deal, or did you? Um, I mean, I absolutely felt like it's a big deal. And and there is there is going to be like a certain level of cognitive dissonance from from me and from you and from a lot of American sports media that covers MLS, uh, obviously, because fundamentally there isn't a ton different outside of MLS. Although I think the best comment I saw on it, I believe it was uh, Aaron Campo, who was who said uh the reason I could support MLS and still be against the European Super League is uh, the same reason that I would be far more upset to see a crashed Ferrari than a crashed Honda Civic, um, <laughs> which was which is a, a funny way of putting it. Um, and and I mean, kind of is is more or less an accurate statement. Um, you have kind of what is more or less the crown jewel, for better or worse, or of international club soccer um you have obviously there are debates over what is what is better or or worth more between the champions league and probably the copa libertadores which is probably a harder competition to win the champions league i would actually go out and on a limb and say that uh, uh, it's harder to win a copa libertadores than than the mm-hmm. champions league but these are the biggest clubs in the world the richest clubs in the world the most popular frequently um and they are all getting together to do this 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 championship, this tournament to see who is the best club in Europe, ostensibly. But you have the European Super League that is trying to come in and and usurp that, which basically would make this idea of any sort of meritocracy or who is actually the best would, would more or less go away just by virtue of, well, these are the clubs that have been big and, and successful for a long time, or at least are the richest clubs around. 
And so they're going to be in the, the competition every single year. And then that's that's how that's that's going to work, even though you have people like Arsenal who haven't qualified for the Champions League in like five years. Like they, they just they straight up haven't even made it in. Um, uh, you have people like Tottenham who are very much newcomers to, I think, the the super the super club uh, team. And, and there is still a debate over whether even they would be considered a super team. Um based on everything um obviously real madrid and barcelona have their own issues at the moment uh juventus hasn't even been able to make the final ever since they signed cristiano ronaldo way back when so so like it, it it's it's this idea that we are going to be in the competition always because we are just bigger and richer mm-hmm. and uh, bigger number equals better club, yeah. obviously. So so we're always going to be in and then we will deign to let a few other teams qualify when you have teams, even in recent memory, you have teams like Ajax that making it to the semifinals of the Champions League. You have teams that are routinely from smaller leagues in Europe that are giving it to a lot of these bigger clubs. Manchester City lost to Lyon in last year's uh, version of the Champions League. All of these things kind of coming together. So, so I mean, to an American sports fan, I suppose, you might look at what American sports are uh, with the franchise system mm-hmm. and how there is no promotion or relegation in the vast majority of American sports. Um and say, well, why not have the best teams yeah. getting together? Why, why not do this? When you come to it from a more European perspective or a slightly more educated soccer fan, which I think I think that probably most European soccer fans in the United States were also very opposed to to the European Super League. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that there was a, a, a chance for people to be like – or I don't think there was an overwhelming majority, certainly, of people that were like – this is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think there was a lot of like, like oh, I don't see the big deal. These teams are there anyway, and that means we get to see Barcelona and play play Bayern Munich more often. And I think there was that mentality to it. I do think part of that is rooted in if you're coming at it from an NFL fan perspective or an, or an NBA or even an MLS. Uh, a little bit, you're seeing it as like, yeah, there's always going to be this kind of closed group that control everything. They have a a figurehead chairperson who speaks for them, but fundamentally they do what they want because nobody can really tell them otherwise. And and that's just kind of how it works. And so I think if that's your sporting background or like fundamentally your sporting background, then it doesn't seem as strange when these European owners or American owners of European clubs want to make that change and kind of bring in that style in Europe. But it is so like against everything that soccer is meant to be. uh, And I would say especially so in Europe. And I think where we have my kind of read on it is that where we have gotten to in the modern, like modern day football is that, there's an uneasy alliance between like fans and players and coaches and the owners, the front office people. And there's this sort of like, look, we know this is kind of how I do it as a Man United fan of like, look, I know there's an ownership group that fundamentally just want to make money. They are there to run this as a business, to have sponsorships, to to be able to print money. And I get that. That's what they're doing. But it's still the club that I grew up supporting that I that I love and care about. And so I'm cheering for the players and the coach. And I'm choosing to believe that. The owners are self-interested and want to make money, but also know that they have bought into a community. They've bought into this organization. And so 
that means that they will at least abide by some norms. And that's where we sort of have been. And it seems like this move is sort of a, now nah, we don't even care about that anymore. We're just going to do what we want. This is now our plaything. And I think once you kind of break the unspoken agreement that you might see it as your plaything, but you're not saying that publicly, and now you make it very public, I think the backlash intensifies because you're suddenly pretty clearly saying the fans don't matter, the communities don't matter. These are our things that we own to do with as we please. Yeah, totally. And I, and I also like, I don't know, I, I feel like I want to push back a little bit on this very large narrative that seems to be going around that is um, these American owners mm-hmm. don't understand the the European model. They they don't understand our clubs. Uh, they wanted to come in and make it American. And and I even saw like some some rumors when the fir- when the whole European soccer league, the European Super League mm-hmm. thing was was breaking really. And one of the one of the most amusing comments and reports that I saw were that uh, referees would be mic'd up like they are in American sports so that they could explain all of their decisions to fans in real time and it would be transparent. Mm-hmm. And I just sat there laughing because that while there are a few American sports where referees have mics, <laughs> their decision-making process is not at all transparent. They just use the mics to announce penalties. Like that's, that's the only thing that they do. There, there is no American sport where the referee explains any, any f- decision-making process. So, <laughs> so I, I, I think that there is this, this kind of overriding thing where, yeah, there were a few American owners um, that were behind this and they were pushing towards an American system, which is true and, and obviously true. And, and I'm not like taking the, away from that, but this idea that they don't, oh, they don't understand our sport. They don't understand our system. I don't know if that's, that's the thing. I just think that they didn't care. Yeah. That's, <laughs> like, it, that's it for like, me. I, mm-hmm. I, I, like they, they understood they were just trying to pull a capitalism. Like yeah. they, like that's, that is, essentially what this boils down to for me um and it does suck that you know a lot of americans now are going to be swept under the rug with this in terms of we don't want you involved in our sport because you tried to ruin it um because a couple people did and i think there's there's obviously a lot of americans that that don't fall into that category because this isn't a necessarily a, a purely american thing um and and Obviously, it shouldn't be considered a purely American thing based on I. it feels like the ringleader of this entire thing being yes. more or less Florentino Perez. Yes. Uh, yeah. Obviously, not American. <laughs> um, not that I'm aware of unless he's got a second passport in there. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but 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 and and really the the over the overriding thing connecting all these owners was just the fact that they are all filthy rich mm-hmm. and saw an opportunity to become richer. And I think that's ultimately what this all boils down to. Yep. And it wasn't as much of a nationality thing. <laughs> yeah. And I honestly, I'm, I'm glad you took us there because that I think does sort of explain the disconnect between fans and media members being like, how can they do this? It doesn't make any sense. And I think that we're seeing that from a non 1% of the 1% standpoint. And I agree with you entirely. There's the quote from, um, I think it was Muhammad Ali's wife in the movie Ali where she's talking about Don King and she says like Don King acts black, talks white and thinks green. And that is sort of fundamentally how I think of of the all of the owners involved is that they think green. It's they don't care that they bought. Yeah, they don't care what Man United means to the city of Manchester or what 
AC Milan or Inter Milan mean to Milan? Not saying they're, they're, they all have American owners, but just saying that I think there's – you're right that there's less of an emphasis on what am I buying into? What is the community? What is the connection to the people? And it's more of a I have bought a commodity – how do yeah. I maximize the value of that commodity such that I can make more money or use it to make more money or sell it on for even more money? And I think a European Super League does exactly that. And so that is where I think they're coming from. And I do think they're also with that comes a sort of closed mindedness of people will get behind it. Honestly, I think there's a mentality of fans are dumb and we're going to give them the big shiny thing and they'll all watch it. And, and yeah. a couple years from now, this will be the norm and everybody will forget the controversy. And I think that was kind of as far as they thought about it and maybe didn't anticipate the reaction they got. And now here we are. It, it, it really is just this tremendous study in how unimaginative and, and just awful at decision-making so much money can make you because the funny, the funny part, about all of this, which when it was very much gallows humor for the couple days that the the idea of the mm-hmm. Super League seemed alive and well. Um, the funny part of all of this was just how poorly thought out all of this yeah. seemed to be, uh, even down to the branding of the league, the, like the logo that they put out where it was just the Super League and the word the was a different color. <laughs> and I was looking at it like who – who comes up with this idea for completely destroying and remaking European soccer in their own image kind of thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very biblical in a way. Yeah. And and can't come up with a better graphic design than that. And and you saw the whole time just there's all these barriers that you could that everybody could see. Like here's all the things that could possibly go wrong. And there are so many things. That could possibly go wrong. And that, and that eventually did go wrong for them. And it seemed like the only response that the European Super League group had to all of those things was, but we have a ton of money. <laughs> and and yeah. I understand how that works a lot of the time. But it, it was very much like, well, what if the governments get involved? Well, we have a ton of money that we could possibly persuade with them. Yeah. What if UEFA and FIFA start doing? Well, we have a ton of money. Uh, what if the fans? Well, we have so much money that the fans don't matter. Um, and and that kind of, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and I, I, I said this to you beforehand, but <laughs> I think it bears repeating. There was a, a quote that um, that Raphael Honigstein uh, got from a, a, some an anonymous German soccer executive uh, about just how many things could potentially go wrong and how how little foresight seemed to go into this announcement and then the the pre or the yeah. the the backlash and and everything that came after and it was basically boiled down to never underestimate people's incompetence yeah yeah and, and, <laughs> and, and, it, and it was that it was that it, very it, much it so. is because like, like to go off of a few things you said there, first of all, I agree with you that so much of the branding and messaging felt secondary, even though by all accounts they hired PR agencies, they hired graphic design agencies, they hired uh, people to spin in the media who had represented like Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May. Like they had a lot of people yeah. doing a lot of things. And that all feels like they're trying to create a thing that they can then believe in. And I think that like what I mean by that is if you, Adam, 
decided I'm going to start a theater company. I know theater is near and dear to your heart. Or you're starting a soccer publication or something. My assumption would then be that it's a thing that you care about, that you fundamentally want to do, that you believe needs to happen. We don't have a theater in this area. It allows kids to come in and pers- like, you know, get acting training, whatever. Like, if you believe in it, you're going to advocate for it. And I think that these owners and the people who are responsible for these decisions sort of went radio silence, seemed to kind of unplug their phones. Like, you don't then have them explaining why this is good and it ends up being like they're being silent and it seems to be that, yeah, they have a bunch of money and that's the solution, except that they don't have a lot of money. They have theoretical money if this thing exists, but all the reporting about Barcelona tells me they don't have a ton of money. Same goes for Juve. Same goes for Real Madrid. And so I think part of it was also we we need to find a way to make more money and this will maybe let us do that. But I think also that silence speaks to the disconnect and to the to your final point there. From the German, uh, was it a German FA member or a German club member? I think it was a member from a German club, uh, yeah. but I, I'm not certain on it. I think the, the Germanness of that is important because when the they make that initial statement, uh, I'm pulling from a, I think, uh, a Guardian summary of things. The Super League announcement on Sunday night was light in detail. The clubs told the world there would be 15 founding members, yet only 12 had signed up. They told us there would be five places available for mortal clubs, but gave no information on how these clubs may qualify for the tournament. They inserted one paltry line on plans for a women's equivalent tournament, but few details on how it would aid the women's game and did not include Lyon, the winner of the last five Champions League titles. So, you see the haphazard approach there, and as I understand it, though there initially were expected to be those 15, which would have then included Bayern, Dortmund, and PSG, and those three clubs, the two German clubs and PSG, saw the exact thing you're pointing at, is that there's incompetence, there's a confusion in the messaging, none of these people are ever going to be able to make a consensus decision for the benefit of the group, and that's why I think those three were not involved immediately, and then as they saw the way things played out, they further distanced themselves. But already, I think, even in the foundational structure, you see how this was never going to work, because it would have been a confederation as opposed to an actual unit, and then you would have had breakaways and arguments, and it always would have been fractured in the end. Yeah, well, and and I think even especially with uh, Bayern and Dortmund, I think there was even questions of whether it would even be legal in Germany for them to join. Um, right. And if they were to do that, uh, the the fifty plus one rule in Germany might like just completely screw over all of their front office executives <laughs> because because I mean German German clubs all by law mm-hmm. have to still be in. In some respects, according to the 50 plus one rule, be be owned by the club mm-hmm. and the club's members, which is usually the fans and the people that are that are around the yeah, club. So for people who don't know, it's what 50 percent of shares plus one share. Plus so you one share. have the, the majority, even if it's yeah. a tiny one. And there are there are a few clubs that have gotten around it slash have been excused from it in various ways. Um, the most high profile one obviously yeah. being Leipzig, uh, and, and the Red Bull machine, um, because they have basically most of their shareholders are Red Bull employees exactly. and, and they have, they've kind of skirted the role that way. And, and there's been a big hub about that. Um, and then you also have, uh, Leverkusen who, uh, basically there's a rule that if you have a group or owner that has given substantial amounts for more than 20 years, then they can own a majority of the club. So Bayer, uh, yeah. the pharmaceutical company, owns them. Uh, same with Wolfsburg and Volkswagen. <laughs> yep. um, 
which uh, actually the reason the reason that uh, Wolfsburg is so involved with uh, that Volkswagen has been so involved with Wolfsburg all three years is because um, kind of the original one of the the OG corporate sponsorships in the Bundesliga uh, was a team uh, named Eintracht Braunschweig, uh, Braunschweig, Braunschweig, yeah, uh, and they were owned more or less for a long time by the president of Jägermeister. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. they were kind of one of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. That taste that it's in the back of your mouth. Can't that even tastes smell. Like, it makes me nauseated. That, that tastes like college. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, and uh, Volkswagen was introduced, was interested in, in purchasing Braunschweig and the, as kind of like one of the last acts of uh, the guy from Jägermeister, uh, was kind of blocking that. That was one of his last acts as president. And so they got involved with Wolfsburg instead. Hmm. Uh, and that's kind of how that happened. Um, but but yeah, so so basically what you need to know is that until 1998, all Bundesliga clubs, in order to participate in the Bundesliga, had to be nonprofit owned by the clubs. And then they changed the rule, the 50 plus one rule, that allowed outside in, uh, outside investors to turn the clubs into private companies if they wanted. But they still have to be primarily owned by the club and the club's members. So Dortmund and Bayern joining any potential Super League could potentially cause all the members to basically get together. And if you if you have all the club's members in agreement, you can you theoretically you can vote everybody off the board and, and, and fire everybody and, and replace it with somebody new, um, which which is much harder to do in actual practice. But. I think Byron and Dortmund both recognized how bad of a deal it would be in several respects, including that. And they immediately said, no, 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 we, we don't need to do that. So we've talked a little bit about uh, where things stand. We're going to get into a bit more about uh, where things go from here and what the reaction has been in just a moment. But first, we're going to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover – Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. I'm assuming you never left, uh, so either you listened to some ads, I hope you did, or you skipped right through, and it hasn't been that long of a break at all. But Adam, uh, for some of these clubs, it could be a break. We don't know if there's going to be uh, bans handed down. We don't know what the punishments will be, but we do have most of these teams now announcing that they're not going to participate, going back to their leagues. And I have to admit, I'm really not enjoying the way this is going down. I will say credit to... 
if I'm giving credit to anybody, I will say minor credit to Arsenal for basically just straight up apologizing and saying, we got this wrong. We made a mistake. Like our, we apologize and not equivocating, not trying to point fingers elsewhere, not saying like, oh, we were pulled in. And to some extent, I think if you make a mistake, you recognize it's a mistake, you apologize. It's still in this case, a massive mistake and a massive miscalculation, but at least owning it says we're owning it. We made, we got it wrong. And I think when you make a mistake, oftentimes the mistake itself, even if it's not that bad, it's the cover up. It's the reaction to the mistake that can get you in more trouble. And John Henry coming out and saying like, we were never going to do this without the fans support. And now (laughs) we know the fans like that, that made me so angry because it's it just it asks us it and and it and it typifies the response that makes me insane that these owners i think fundamentally thought people will get behind it, it they're dumb it doesn't matter whatever and now that they have to sort of acknowledge that they didn't really do the proper calculation they're trying to act as though they always cared and it was always so important it's like if it was that important you didn't put your clap out there to be the one to field questions about it. If you're really cared as Ed Woodward says he did behind closed doors, you don't put Ole Gunnar Solskjaer out there to deal with it. And I think so many of these teams are trying to walk it back in a way that isn't really taking ownership and really isn't holding themselves accountable for the mistake. Yeah, it is. It is very much interesting. I mean, obviously there was tons of pressure from, from UEFA and FIFA Mm -hmm. and governments, but I, I do think that a lot of the, the reason that, ultimately these clubs went back on it was the pushback they received from their own players and coaches because they did kind of screw them over. Like they're just like, yeah, we're making this announcement. Most, it doesn't, didn't seem like anybody knew, uh, outside of the kind of these, these select group of owners and maybe some people in the front offices of these clubs. Um, and I, I know I saw the report that, you know, that basically Manchester United players were kind of furious and, Mm -hmm. and had a big team meeting with Ed Woodward, um, and they were upset that nobody had been told and that they, they were also upset for for Ole and that he had to just go out and basically talk about something that he knew nothing about, more or less. Um, you saw Jurgen Klopp and, and Pep Guardiola both basically say like, yeah, this sucks. Like, we don't <laughs> we don't want this. Yeah. Um, which I mean, and, and when with those two coaches specifically, you have people that are a little bit. I don't like a little bit fireproof in terms of like it's impossible really for them to be burned by going back against their club because realistically if they were fired they would still probably get whatever job they wanted mm. afterwards and, yeah. and people would still pay them oodles of money because of who they are and what they've done and and their track record. Um, but it was it, you know you have this this tremendous backlash. I know I, I am – I'm curious to know how you felt in in the in the grandscape of Manchester United backing out of the Super League, coupled with the announcement that Ed Woodward is finally going to resign his position. Because I know I was talking to Drew, my little brother, who's also a United fan, and he was had basically went from everything is dead kind of to me for a couple days to this is the best day ever <laughs> uh, man i wish I, I i wish i shared that feeling I, like not i'm gonna be a downer and i'll say like i want them to throw the book at all these teams i i and i and i said that yesterday i got some responses like that's not fair to the players these players didn't do anything wrong you're making them suffer and and i think that is certainly a perspective and i'm not saying that's even the incorrect perspective it is just not my perspective and right now 
I do not want to go back to business as usual. These clubs feel like they're going to try to pull a George Costanza and quit and then walk in the next day and be like, oh, what? That was a joke. We didn't really mean that. We're all, we've been here the whole time. Don't worry about it. And I don't want that Watch to like happen. like the coup in Turkey. <laughs> right? Oh, no. We're all friends now, right? Please don't arrest me. Um, and like, and like, I just, I don't, I don't want that. And so if it means the players don't get to play in the Champions League, yes, that's unfair to them. But it's their clubs that made that decision. And I think it holds those clubs accountable. And then when those players resign, do they want to sign for clubs that get kicked out of Europe and make individualist decisions? Probably not. Do other players, when they're looking at when they want to move, if you've got, you know, the next up and coming player for Santos, do they maybe go to Bayern or Dortmund or maybe PSG? Not that those are necessarily heroic clubs, but like, do they go to Everton? Do they go to West Ham or Leeds? Because those teams. You know, like they're not banned from Europe and they're not trying to skirt the rules. Like, I, I think you have to hit the owners in their wallets because that's the only thing that they seem to care about. And so, oh, yeah, I don't know what will happen, but I think like, yeah, any other day, Ed Woodward stepping down, it feels like, OK, they're sort of now they're making the next steps, the concrete steps. They're learning from their mistakes. They're moving forward. And this just feels like they needed somebody to fall on their sword. We still haven't heard anything from the Glazers. There have been no public statements that I know of. And aside from, I think, like one or two quick lines that then Liverpool used on their website instead of quoting John Henry. Like, I just think in what could be a time of change, I find myself caring about the club less than I ever have because I feel like they care less about me than I've ever felt they do in the past. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and that's, a, I mean, I mean, ultimately in, in every single one of these situations and this type of thing, it's always the, the smallest people that get mm-hmm. the most hurt yep. and not, not the people that it's actually like their fault. Uh, yeah. And you always have that. So you, you, you have this, this atmosphere of, we don't care about our fans. We don't care about kind of anybody mm-hmm. <laughs> except for yep. except for our our ability to make more money and how that extends to the fans, but also to their own players and their own managers and how much they have been kind of disrespected in this whole process. Um, and and it is wild too because I mean I talked about how I talked earlier about how the answer to everything seemed to be well we have a ton of money. Yep. Um, and and that was also seemed to be the answer to well what if our players get banned from international competition mm-hmm. and and we're basically asking anybody to sign for our club to forego their possible right to to play in a European Championship or in a FIFA World Cup um, and and that that is that how many players are just willing to say yeah I'm willing to to forego all that for the right to have a contract that pays me like 400,000 pounds a month or something like something, something dumb like that. Like the type of money that previously was only seen in kind of when the, the Chinese super league was signing random players Mm -hmm. for, for the, for that three year period or whatever, however long, long that was. And and they were just paying Pato and, and Hulk (laughs) stupid wages like that, that, that sort of deal. Um, that is it is it is still continually wild to think about just how little it was thought out like well yeah. maybe the players might push back on so, this yeah and i think that then like again it goes back to the i think there are assumptions based on arrogance that were consistently made i think of the like not to bring politics into it but i will like 
it reminds me a little bit of the, like the kind of Trump idea of these people are attacking the presidency and it's an attack on this institution. It's like, no, it's an attack on you because you're doing certain things. And I think these owners thought, well, they, we employ the managers. We em- employ the players. They will do as we say because they are our employees. That's how a business works. Nobody in the business is ever speaking out against us. Then you're a whistleblower and we can somehow prosecute you for that. But I think Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp and players publicly saying no, I think that wasn't a thing that they ever thought would happen. And similarly, as far as I understand it, the reason why they all had to kind of mass uh, – like there was this mass, mass exodus of English clubs is because for Premier, for the Premier League to make decisions, to vote on decisions, they have to have three-quarters majority, which means mm-hmm. 15 of the 20 clubs have to go along with it. These six clubs gave them a minority block. They could prevent yeah. any sort of – punitive action by the Premier League. And I think, again, there's this assumption that everybody's going to stay lockstep and that's all we need. And as soon as there start being threats of being kicked out of Europe or I think from the FA, from the Premier League, from Boris Johnson, they were, we're going to change laws that you can't register European players anymore. That's how we'll punish you. Then I think as soon as one team pulls out, now you do have that majority to vote on sanctions and to vote on punishments, and everybody has to withdraw immediately. And it, and it gets back to the lack of planning, the lack of having every detail figured out. And I think they tried to present as though they did, and they had this huge plan, and they had the money. Try to go against us. And that seems to be how they got people on board, was by threatening, you're going to be left behind, like the, we're going to be the best thing in the world, and you're not going to be with us. And I think there was a lot of intimidation and a lot of weight thrown around, when, to your point, there wasn't that much weight behind the weight being thrown around very bold i will say very bold of the premier league clubs to assume that the clubs that were all in a league that was created a couple decades ago by just turning in their resignations from the football league and saying we're gonna go do our own thing now yeah. that they couldn't just you know maybe we don't need a 15 club majority <laughs> to do something to this club very bold to assume they couldn't just change the rules when they felt like it yeah uh when they were already doing that when they were changing the rules when when they felt like it uh it is a little bit funny but the fallout is a it is a question of okay how do we first of all how do we make sure that this doesn't happen mm-hmm. and 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 that this cannot happen um how do we how do we make sure that happens and and is that going to be accomplished through punishment of some sort um because we've seen so there's already been some figures that are resigning um but it it's not like the owners that are really that were the driving forces here are are stepping down are are getting rid of the clubs because they're not there i mean we 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 haven't we haven't seen that at all and i you know I, I made this this joke on Twitter yesterday, but I mean, like I said, you know, Stan Kroenke's organs at this point are just filled with flame retardant foam. Like the, <laughs> look at all the clubs and all the sports franchises the man owns and tell me tell me that he cares about being unpopular because yep. he clearly does no. not. He, he does not give a rip what what anybody thinks about his ownership. Um, so the owners are not going to just sell off their most valuable pro- their properties because you know, all of a sudden people are upset with them. You know, that's, that's, that's kind of their thing always. Yeah. Like people are always going to be upset with us. Why, why, why should we care? Um, so how do you punish these clubs? And you come back always to things that are going to punish players that are going to punish employees of clubs that, that don't deserve to be punished really. Um, 
as as much as you can say none of these these people deserve to be punished um but ultimately like that's the type of thing that's that is going to like you said hurt the pockets of of these owners mm-hmm. uh, that's the only way to get to them yeah, so how, just, like yeah i don't i don't i don't it's it's the problem i don't i can't think of a solution to making sure this doesn't happen again to punishing clubs and teams and making sure these owners are kind of put in their place that doesn't ultimately in some way hurt people that that don't deserve it yeah and and i think as far as i understand european and english law which is not very much but i feel confident in saying i don't think they can be compelled to sell outright you can't just say you know what you don't own it anymore that's not how it works what i think you maybe could do and again this is still punishing the players to some extent and i think that that's sort of i guess for me again that that is an argument it just sort of is like okay so then what's the alternative to just let them go back to it let them operate as they are i think the only thing i could see is if you sanctioned the clubs as they are presently structured. So if you said Manchester United is banned from European competition for three years under the current ownership, and if you really limit what they're able to do, if you put uh, curbs on what they're allowed to spend, if you, if you give them a transfer embargo, there are things you could do to hurt the stability and the profitability of the club such that it becomes incumbent upon the owners to sell. And that's the only way I think you can go about doing that is to make it financially untenable for these groups to stay in charge and then they sell on and then those sanctions are removed under new ownership but then do you run into the same problem if manchester united are selling the glazers are going to want so much money that that's probably like the saudi government or some country is buying that club and does that improve the situation in that way probably not either so maybe it is just then having to change the entire existing structure of football in England and elsewhere to make it 50 plus one. That's been talked about, but yeah, that's a big old can of worms that I don't fully know how to get my head around. Yeah. I mean, I have no idea. And, and when you talk about like, Oh, we have to make the 50 plus one rule go through, then you're basically like, okay, well what, what you're saying more or less is, okay, we're going to go. We, the UK government are going to go up against the combined, uh, law forces that are employed by City Football Group and Roman Abramovich and the Glazers and 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 everybody, all all those six teams, which I imagine is considerable. <laughs> I, I I think it's not a surprise to me at all that Chelsea and Manchester City seem to be the first English clubs that really backed out mm-hmm. because looking at the the people that own that on the face of them and um I, kind of the more or less the the purposes behind owning some of these clubs, uh, which I mean, like it's, it's more or less an open secret. Like you have some sports washing that's Mm -hmm. happening and kind of doing some things to these, these owners reputations, uh, internationally. Um, because these owners do have these, these, these ownership groups, these countries, uh, and, and Roman Abramovich, they have reputations. And because of those reputations, you can assume that they have probably, you know, lawyers and law firms working for them that could successfully petition God more or less like mm. that. That's, that's probably how that works. And, and, and that is, you know, that that's kind of, uh, if you're trying to institute some super fundamental change, then, then you're definitely going to be facing lawsuits from every single one yep. of those clubs. <laughs> 
It's going to get uh, litigious. I think that's yeah. definitely true. Uh, and and while this is all happening, we have other things going on, like the Champions League vote to restructure happening and passing, and we do have a new format. So we should talk a little bit about uh, other aspects of European football in just a moment. We're also going to talk about the, the Olympic draw, specifically on the women's side, because... Oh, the U.S. men's Olympic qualifying team. Uh, but we're going to get to that uh, in just a second. First, another word from today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. We are back. We're going to talk the new Champions League format, which has been voted upon and approved. Uh, it seemed as though a lot of the... Uh, changes were concessions to these 12 clubs who then decided they didn't want to be part of the competition anymore. Before we get to those changes and what that means for the Champions League, I did want to go into the idea, because I've seen some people making this argument, that the European Super League was never meant to be a real thing. It was always sort of a bluff, a screen from these 12 clubs to see what else they might be able to get away with, what other concessions they could get from UEFA. I do not buy into that at all. I think if you look at their the debt agreements with J.P. Morgan and how they were going to finance the league, they had hired communications agencies to make things happen. They had filed documentation with European courts around Europe, including I think uh, Spain was the one that I saw specifically that they had measures in place to prevent any sort of legal action being taken. I think they had done a lot of legwork 
to make sure that this could happen. Obviously not enough, but I do not then buy into the idea that they were sort of doing this as a front and, and what, what's it going to cost them? Why not try a little bit more? Uh, where are you on that theory, Adam? I, I'm, I'm kind of in between. I think hmm. I'm in between your, your take on it and what is the, that kind of presiding theory of, Oh, they just wanted to get more concessions. Um, I think that a couple clubs went into it thinking, you know what, we're probably going to get more money out of this from UEFA and it might not work, but we're probably gonna, it's probably going to happen. And and it, I think it, specifically the English clubs, it seemed like there were a few of those clubs at the very least that said to themselves, oh, well, these other couple clubs are in it. We better join. Mm-hmm. And like maybe we keep one leg out of the pool a little bit to try to didn't try to straddle the fence a little bit. And, and we'll probably look at this as a way to gain leverage negotiating with UEFA about champions league and how it benefits us and, and all of that stuff. Um, but I also think that there are a couple, a couple of clubs that were all the way in on it and, and thinking we're going to take this all the way. And, and I, I do agree with that. Uh, you don't, if, if all of the clubs that were involved with this, we're thinking, yeah, this is going to be kind of a negotiation ploy. You don't get that level of funding and debt management from from JP Morgan. <laughs> you don't right. you don't do so much of that legal legwork. So I think that there was a split clearly in how several of these clubs viewed it. And I, and I think that's even clear just by how it so immediately and completely collapsed with you had 12 clubs and I kind of looked at it. And, and it seemed like you have the exact amount of star power you need because starting it without Bayern Munich, without PSG, even without a Dortmund or, or some some mm-hmm. other of these uh, prestigious European clubs, um, say, say you invite Ajax or something like that, like so, some of some of these people that hurt them from from the jump that that really they kind of I think we're we're depending on the momentum. To, yeah. to just be like sweep up these other clubs like, yeah, they're going to get on board. Um, but but you had that exact amount of star power. And as soon as somebody like Chelsea or Manchester City leaves, it's like you don't have a Super League anymore. Yeah. You just don't like yeah. like you don't you clearly don't have all of the best teams. You have a you have a bunch of really, really good teams. You have a bunch of rich teams, but you clearly didn't have all of them. So so I think that. You know, when you saw a couple of those clubs start to fall, that suggests to me that not all of these clubs were all in on it from the get go. But like you said, you don't some of them clearly were because you don't you don't get that level of of funding and and stuff from from the banks. You don't you don't do all that legwork if at least a couple of them, the driving forces we're not all the way in on the idea of the European Super League. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Okay. I I think I think I can I can go with that. The idea that like maybe some of the clubs were on board but seeing how it went and maybe that explains some of the radio silence i do think also the amount of money that they were saying was going to be guaranteed to each club at start would have helped a lot of clubs who are massively 
in financial distress to maybe navigate that a little <laughs> bit more. So I think that's also part of it as well. Maybe the new Champions League plan will help with that. Uh, we'll see if these clubs get to participate. But Adam, let's talk a little bit about that uh, now. Uh, basically, we've as we said, it's already been approved. It will start for the 2024 season, I think, is when it goes into effect. But it expands the competition from 32 to 36 teams. Mm-hmm. There are other adjustments in there as well. Uh, what are the ones that stood out to you? Well, I mean, you have the the biggest one, which is this the whole revamp of the group stage mm-hmm. from having groups and and conducting draws with with different pots of of with people that are you know yeah. relatively ranked in a, in a way uh, relatively ranked and, yeah <laughs> yeah and 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 you kind of are getting rid of that and and you're getting rid of the concepts of a group of death or this is an easy group. Um, in favor of the Swiss system or the Swiss pool, which is basically this concept where everybody is in one is in one big group uh, when you get to the group stage, and everybody plays ten games, and and usually how it works is you play your game and then the people that win usually go up against other people that win, and the people that lose are then kind of dropped down in the system and. and and as the tournament progresses, you see the spreading out of who is winning the most and who is losing the most. And so from there, you get a top – I believe there's a top eight yep. uh, that automatically qualify for the knockout round. And then positions 9 to 24 go into two-legged advancement ties. So a little bit it's, – it's almost a little bit like um, like European World Cup qualification where you have – a bunch of large groups of usually like 10, 10 or so teams and the first place teams in each of these groups advance to the world cup immediately. And then the second place teams go into these kind of like two legged playoff to get in. Um, so you have teams nine to 24 ranked at the end of the Swiss pool. Uh, they go into this two legged playoff with one other team to get into the knockout round. And then the bottom, the rest, 20 teams, 25 to 36, it would be then, uh, are eliminated. They're, they're, they're out of the competition at that point. Um, so the biggest changes that that is going to make outside of the group of death and, or, or an easy group. And so you, you possibly see like what happened to Manchester United this year. Sorry, not to compound to your misery, Taylor, but, um, (laughs) so you, so you see things like, oh, Leipzig, Manchester United and PSG got drawn into the same champions league group. That's crazy. Manchester United are out. They don't even make it to the group stages. You see much less of that, probably. Um, and instead, you see a lot more games. I think it adds. I think I said it adds a hundred total games to to the the group stage. Um, and obviously, everybody that is competing in the Champions League gets four extra games that they were playing. Uh, you no longer have this thing where I have home and aways against three other teams. Now I'm just competing against whoever pops up. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, because to um, emphasize that, it's five home, five and away, but it's not you play one team at home, one team away. It's you play yeah. one team at home and you play a different team away. Yes. And then eventually we we get settled into our knockout stages. Right. Um, which which are a little bit more well, more like the, what, what they are now. Um, uh, they're, so, they're familiar. <laughs> so the one thing that you just said that is that is unfamiliar to me that I'd like to go into a little bit more, and I apologize if I'm putting you on the spot. We can also promise to cover this later on. But like – 
I think I had understood it probably incorrectly that they just sort of decided, still based on coefficient ranking, here are the five teams you're playing at home, here are the five teams you're playing away. Is that your understanding of how it works, or is it sort of an evolving thing based on the strength of the the kind of competition as the competition goes along? So it's funny because I <laughs> I come to my understanding of the Swiss style and Swiss pools and that stuff from actually uh, from gaming and like esports stuff. Uh-huh. So I I'm seeing this, and as far as I'm understanding, like I'm assuming that it's working similarly. But you could be completely right that it's more or less like we're just deciding this on coefficient, and you're facing ten ten random teams or nine random teams, and mm-hmm. and that's just how it go- how it's going to work. How the Swiss system works a lot in in gaming is there's a set amount of people that are total in the pool, and the way it works is as it progresses, you are kind of you're you're playing other people that. So, like, say you you get oh, to the okay. first round yeah. and you win and somebody else wins. Okay, the people that win get paired together. And then the people that lose will, will get paired together. And then you kind of create this branching system where the people at the top are consistently having to play other top teams. And if they lose, then they're getting dropped down to people that have right. similar records. So I think that no, that makes sense. That makes complete sense and makes sense why they'd want it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's how it's going to work. But I'm not. I'm not positive. I. It is. It is convoluted. <laughs> it, to it be is. sure. And I think all of this is sort of like new board game, new card game rules of like, you'll get it as we go. Uh, But but I think your explanation makes, again, I'm not saying because I don't have the authority to say that that is definitely what it is, but that does make more sense because the narrative around all of these changes, including expanding it to 36, is that you are making it more attractive for these bigger clubs, these breakaway clubs and other ones as well, who wanted it to be more lucrative they don't want to like have as many meaningless games but they also want more money they want more opportunities to play bigger competition so it does then make sense that yeah if you're playing teams that are further up that are higher up in the standings you're going to get the like the likelihood of barcelona versus bayern munich is dramatically increased but mm-hmm. you have those smaller clubs who are playing also meaningful games and not getting blown out. And maybe they can work their way up. Very unlikely. But maybe. And that's the like the kind of – there's still the competitive possibility. I think it's – oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah no, I, I was just going to say, yeah, and you get less of a chance of, say, a team like, like uh, Porto. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get less of a chance of them popping up so late into the competition because – all of a sudden, there's no such thing as an easy group. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no such thing as, oh, this group just got drawn. And it was uh, teams from Portugal, Switzerland, mm-hmm. Russia, and uh, I don't know, like ben, the, yeah. uh, Azerbaijan or something like that. Like, <laughs> it's usually like the fourth best team in Spain is somehow in that group. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so you you get that that group suddenly doesn't exist. So all of a sudden, it's kind of like, oh, like this this the easy route uh, that is introduced by the randomness of draws is a little bit less likely and with more games and more opportunities to play it becomes more attractive for a lot of these the the european super league teams or or just in general the bigger teams both because yes you have chances of really big money big uh high profile games occurring more often um but also just in general it seems like this system is designed to make sure the bigger clubs have as much of a chance to advance to the knockout stages and to get as far in the competition as possible. Mm -hmm. So it is, it's definitely a a means of saying, yeah, like this is, this is, 
totally a revamp that is directly supposed to appeal to the bigger clubs. This is not a, a... uh, this is not a revamp that benefits smaller clubs very much. And but with that said, if this were the only change, like I think I I can get behind it more easily because tournaments are going to change. The structure of how things operate changes. The Champions League has changed multiple times in how it, the the oh, format yeah. is and even the naming. Uh, and I think that if it was just like yeah, we want to try something different to get more meaningful games and have less, you know, like like. teams getting blown out 6-0 and then it kind of being dead rubber games and it doesn't matter, I'm okay with that. I think in a vacuum, that is okay if you want to try something different. It's then the adding of of four teams who are being added for various reasons. We won't get into all the technical terminology, but it feels like those four teams, it's set up to let in some of these historic prestige clubs who didn't qualify automatically. An example being, I think the final two spots are awarded to the two clubs with the highest club coefficients who have not qualified automatically. I believe could be totally wrong, but I believe that's basically England that it's, uh, I think it's Arsenal and Tottenham have the highest coefficients of teams that didn't qualify. So that feels right there that this gets those super six as I think they've dubbed themselves uh, that we're going to be in the breakaway league. It, It kind of allows them pretty much guarantees them that you're going to have six teams from England competing in this competition as long as they keep that coefficient ranking up enough. Yeah. And, and yeah, like you said, tournaments always change. And and a lot of the time there's there's good reason for tournaments mm-hmm. to always change. Uh, I, I mean, in the, what was it? The, the 1950, I think, World Cup, uh, Uruguay won and they only won three games. Yeah. They, they played one group stage game. <laughs> And they made and they then that made it that let them get into the the round robin championship group <laughs> because because they already were in a group of three. And mm-hmm. then I think France was in their group and France withdrew from the competition. And so they had to beat. I think they played India. I think I think they they beat they beat somebody mm-hmm. really bad in one game. And then they got to the championship group because of that. Yeah. <laughs> so so like uh, sometimes there's good reason for for these things. But like you said, just because there might be some things that appeal or that sound good on their face doesn't mean that ultimately it's not like a, a parachute deal for a lot of these these clubs. It is making it fundamentally easier uh, for somebody like Arsenal, <laughs> who, who, like I, I've stated before, haven't made it in the Champions League for five years. It's making it easier for them to get in the Champions League um, without necessarily – yeah, earning it in the way that they see it seemed like they they have tried to or have had to earn it in the past. Um, and and maybe it ends up maybe we get to the end of this season. And if if the Champions League were to like start in its new form in 2022, the 2021, 2022 season, like immediately, maybe we get to the end of the season. and It's like, oh, cool. West Ham and Leicester get to play in the Champions League. Right? That's neat. Yeah. Uh, like, um but like, I mean, and it, it's kind of similar to like what Jurgen Klopp said, like, oh, like I like living in a world where West Ham can play in the Champions League. Like I, I like that. Um, but but it is fundamentally kind of screwing over smaller clubs in the favor yeah. of making sure that the richer clubs get into the Champions League, despite the fact that they have systematically a lot of these big clubs that have that are a part of this systematically have not earned it over the past couple of years. We should just make it like the money league. That's that. They should just name it that, and then make the Champions <laughs> League the one for like teams that 
win their respective competitions, but maybe don't have all the money, and then we can go that route instead. Uh, but yeah, I think we'll, we'll continue to get variations and changes to the Champions League, but it does not seem like we will get the Super League anytime soon, so I think I am okay with that, even if I am wary of the new Champions League format. Uh, does that work for you, Adam? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I think the biggest question about all of this for me, um, and, and I am somebody who's invested in European soccer, I have a favorite European team, um, I had the good fortune of my European team not being in the yeah. Super League. So now everybody's like, oh, look at these clubs. They're great. Even though, I mean, to some level, being a fan of any team means that you are suspending your disbelief mm -hmm. over the people that run your team, the ownership groups, what they do outside of the 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 time that they're running your team and and oh, no ethical consumption or capitalism and, and, and all of that stuff and, and, and how yeah. – you how everybody deals with that because there there is a certain level of you know like yes i support this club and there are people that are dealing with it and that are running it that aren't good people probably um but the biggest question to me is okay what does this do to this what does this do to mls what does this do to the proposed mls liga mx mm -hmm. merger uh and and how that functions because MLS operates under a closed system where people aren't promoted and relegated. And for a long, long time, that's mostly been because uh, you need more stability. And a lot of MLS clubs were – and it, it was good for MLS to have new teams and for, for them to, to keep the teams in the markets that they have them in. But you have this idea that like, well, if all of a sudden you have a an open system, then you'll probably have a lot of owners – um, I think it's assumed that like, oh, people like Bob Kraft or Stan Kroenke or something like that will probably try to get out of the league and you have teams collapse. Um, and so you, you've you had a closed system for a long time just in the name of stability and keeping the league going. Do you need that anymore? Should MLS be working towards some sort of promotional relegation system? And if they go into a, a merger with Liga Emiekis – how is that fundamentally different from a European Super League? And should we support that or should we not support that? Because I do think ultimately myself as an MLS fan and as, a, as an American soccer fan, ultimately I would love to see promotion and relegation in the United States. I would absolutely love that. Do I think it's realistic right now? I don't know. I, I, I think that from a standpoint of you know, certain MLS clubs and, and how those function, I think that yes – that MLS should be at a point where you can get promotion and relegation. But I mean, you see USL champions folding like the next year, like, like being financially unstable. And, and so it is a question of, is the system ready to handle that? And should we let clubs die if they are not be able to self-sustain themselves in that sort of system? It, it poses a lot of questions and, and requires a lot of soul searching from American fans because of, the system of American soccer and how it functions here. I appreciate that that's like, I, I wish that that were the case for me, but I think it, in reality, I think they want the merger because I think they don't want promotion relegation. I thought, I think Liga oh. Mekis wants to be guaranteed that they're going to be in a league and making the money. So to some extent, I think that they're doing it to not have pro rel because I think they don't need to. And I think like, and I'm saying I would like them to, but I think 
Liga Mekis owners look at MLS as like, wow, you guys just keep making money and you don't have to really compete in a free market. You don't have pro rail. We want that. That's I think that's what the European Super League is rooted in. And I think that the merger for Liga Mekis and MLS would be still under the jurisdiction of CONCACAF. I think that's the other big difference with the Super League. They seem to be, we're going to make all the decisions independent of UEFA. So as long as that merger, the US MLS, or the MLS Emekis one was still under the operational structure of CONCACAF, I think that probably helps them not deal with some of the issues that the Super League would have had to deal with. I, I think that that's right, but I do wonder if, if it were to go through, because I agree with you that, that I don't think the, a lot of the MLS owners, I think there are my, be a couple that are like yeah let's open it up but i think that most of the mls owners very much like that it's a close system but their team can get relegated that there is some level of prestige that that is always going to be communicated (laughs) to the club um and and i think that obviously league mx owners also want to do that sort of thing for the same reason because it's more money because it's more guaranteed money uh i mean league mx has suspended promotion and relegation for the last several seasons now um and I think that ultimately, if the merger were to go through, it would be because they don't want promotion and relegation. However, if the merger does go through and all of a sudden you have a new a new big league on the scene, because I think that MLS mm. and Liga MX not doing promotion and relegation and doing and running things how they're running has largely you know, it, it's benefited CONCACAF and so CONCACAF has been fine with it. And it's largely been ignored by FIFA as much as possible just because ultimately I don't think they see the CONCACAF leagues as very important on the international stage. If MLS and Liga Amikis merge and create a, a big, rich North American Super League, does that upset the balance a little bit of, all right, Europe has the best international clubs. South America has a lot of very storied, good clubs, and they are always going to have their fandom. If North America all of a sudden upsets that balance, starts throwing out massive wages, getting best players, do FIFA start to get involved? Yeah. Do do we start to look at, oh, well, they're operating on a closed system, and that's not fair to everybody else, all the other professional teams that operate in North America – do we start to get involved? Do we start to see something of a, a blowback to it like we have seen now from the European Super League? And I think those are all valid questions and criticisms because I'm I'm not the type of person who who says, oh, MLS is and, and Soccer United Marketing is above criticism or, or is above uh, is a like we shouldn't we shouldn't have to question them. Um, like I think that some people mm-hmm. think that I am just because I am a fan of the league and I like watching the league and I, I feel like the teams should be supported. Um, I, it is, it is a, it's a sticky situation. And I think a lot of the time it needs to be approached by, with more nuance than both sides give to, to the conversation. Um, but the European super league does pose Tough questions for MLS in its current form and in the form that it seems to want to get to. I think I think to your point, like FIFA, if you mess with their money, that's when they care. It's yeah. why it, I did a one on one episode on why like the men's Olympic soccer isn't as good on the women's side or as good as, as other competitions. And it's because FIFA don't want it to be. They want the World Cup to be the priority. So I think you're right that as soon as they feel like they're not getting the money they should be or they're not in charge the way they should be, that is where probably FIFA 
uh, do get involved. And that does extend to the women's game as well, which is maybe a good way to transition to the Olympics uh, really quickly. Sure. Let's talk about that. Because right now we do still have, on the women's side at least, you can field your full-strength team, obviously a smaller roster size on the men's side. You have the U23 requirements with some overage players. But let's talk about the women's Olympic draw before we call it a day. Uh, we know our groups now. We've got Group E, Japan, Canada, Great Britain, Chile. Group F, uh, China, Brazil, Zambia, and the Netherlands. And then Group G. Uh, I don't know why that they seem to have gone with A, B, C, and D are the men's side, and E, F, and G are the women's, uh, but yeah. whatever. Uh, group G for the women would be Sweden, the United States, Australia, and New Zealand. That is a strange group to me, mostly because it's Australia and New Zealand, which I wasn't expecting to have both of them in the group, but here we are. Do, um, I guess my question is, do Australia on the women's side also qualify through Asia? I, I, I think they must. I think that's which the is which which must happen. be how how that that happens. I, I doubt they qualify through Oceania. Um, I'm gonna guess Asia with, get three spots based on the teams that we've got here, and then Oceania probably gets one or a half or something like that. Yeah, 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 one or a half. That's a tough group. That, that's 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 a group that's going to ask a lot of questions of of Lotko and uh, and the U.S. Women's National Team. Um, it's a familiar we, I mean, one, right? Because it's like it is it is a familiar group. Totally. Um, Sweden. I mean, obviously, Sweden just booted <laughs> booted the women out of the last tournament. Yeah. Uh, they got peed hard. <laughs> it was a it was a just a I think a, a very classic Pia Sundaga uh, experience for a lot of people. Um, and then there was the obvious fallout and, and yeah. blowback on that for a lot of uh, the women's team and the players and Don't stuff. Don't call people cowards. Um, Don't call people cowards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. 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 Uh, and then you have you have Australia who are they're they're not. I, I think that I'm I'm fine with saying Australia shouldn't shouldn't beat the U.S. women's yep. team, but they're the type of team that's like there's always a chance and. Mm-hmm. I think that they have Sam this Kerr, is, there's always a chance. Yeah, yeah. Sam Kerr, there's always a chance. It's not the same uh, Australian team that that was very good against the United States in, say, the 2015 World Cup um, and gave them plenty of things to think about. But it's a team that, like you said, there's Sam Kerr. There, there's there's always a chance. There's always things that they can do. Um, and even even on, on New Zealand's team, I, there's a lot of familiar faces. There's a lot of people that are playing in the NWSL that, that you see um, and and that are that are going to not just roll over for, for the U.S. Women's National Team. So it's it's a it's an interesting group. Um, I I still think that the U.S. Women's National Team should clearly be the favorite, yeah. uh, obviously defending World Cup champions. Yes, this this makes sense. You should be the favorite to win this group um, and and get out. Uh, but it, it is going to be not just like a, a walk in the park. No, it's not. I was it, it is like I kept expecting to see some of those more like historic rivals at this competition, forgetting that a big part of it is the way Europe handles qualifying. It's I think what the top four teams in the last Women's World Cup or the teams who yeah. made it the furthest, the four teams who made it the furthest are the ones who automatically qualify. So the U.S. knocking France out in the early rounds is why France isn't there. Uh, no Germany either is Wild. unexpected. <laughs> so it, it is strange to not have some of those sort of more prominent teams there. So in the end, it does seem like it's maybe it's Great Britain, but maybe it's Japan. Maybe it's the Netherlands. Maybe it's Brazil. But above all, it does seem like it's the U.S.'s tournament to lose, which is maybe recently always the case but definitely not the case last time we were in the olympics uh, to your original point 
Yeah. Well, and and I think it's going to be very interesting just because it seems like a lot of people are approaching this and assuming that this is going to be the last hurrah for several U.S. women's mainstays um, and people that have been around for forever. People like Megan Rapinoe, people like Carly Lloyd that have literally we've seen them since like like 2011, (laughs) like like. Um, and even and even earlier than that, um, if you find like an old school black and white photo of of U.S. soccer at its foundational like beginnings, there's Megan Rapinoe's in the background. It's a little bit like The Shining. She's always been there. I mean, it's it's it's, it's crazy to think just how how consistently the U.S. women's national team have core groups of players that extend so far. I mean, like you have Michelle Akers was playing with you know Christine Lilly. And and Mia Hamm and Mia Hamm and Lily played with Wambach and Wambach played with the people that are on this that are Mm -hmm. that are still first choice members of the U.S. Women's National Team. (laughs) Like that's we we don't have many degrees of separation at all, um, just based on the longevity of of so many of these players. But it is interesting because we are getting to the point now where. We have a lot of we have a lot of young talent that is pushing these people and and we're assuming I think a lot of people are assuming that we see Carly Lloyd, that we see Megan Rapino as a starter kind of thing. But I think we're at the point where it's a very it should be an open question of are these people starters? Are these people automatic inclusions um, or should we be just turning the team over to people like Lynn Williams, people like Kat Macario that that have been grinding for a long time and are clearly are clearly incredibly talented. Um, it is, it is going to be an interesting, yeah. interesting time because the last, I think, I mean, we saw the last like big transition transition period for the U S women's national team was probably when Tom Sermani came in as the coach and he tried to make a bunch of changes and we all know how that ended. Yeah. So yeah. how does Vla- how does Vlatko navigate that, um, and and how does that affect the performance at the Olympics? That's all going to be very some very interesting narratives and for the U.S. Women's National yeah. Team, and especially with the sw- the smaller roster. There's going to yeah. be a lot of names left off that are going to make people angry. So I look forward totally. to that eventual debate uh, uh, down the road. But for now, we can just celebrate the U.S. women's team is going to be there. We know their opponents. It's going to be a good time. It's certainly going to be more fun than uh, having to exist in a reality of the European Super League, which we don't have to really do anymore. So that's very good. Adam, that's thank nice. you so much for taking so long to talk about uh, a really difficult and wide-ranging topic. But I think we covered uh, all of the points I wanted to hit. I hope we got to everything you wanted to cover as well. Uh, yeah, I, I just I I feel very lucky again to always be on the show. Like, I, I mean, I just in general, like I know that I know that we're friends and I've done this several times now. But but thank you uh, yeah, for having yes. me on. And I, I, as always, I, I just feel really like blessed to be able to do something like this. So, yeah, I, I feel I feel great about our conversation thus far. (laughs) Thanks, man. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Uh, Well, if people want to uh, read more from you, hear more from you, how can they do so? Uh, I enjoyed your MLS Choose Your Own Adventure, even if I kept (laughs) losing every time. Yes. So um, 
my the most consistent place you can find my writing is I run a newsletter for Jimmy Conrad and his kind of extended Jimmy Conrad media universe that he does um, that he he obviously works at CBS and is an analyst for them through Champions League and European uh, competitions. But he also has his own Twitch stream, which I also regularly appear on. So if you're interested in seeing me, that is uh, twitch.tv slash Jimmy Conrad, where you can regularly see my face talking or also bits that I have written uh, and different uh, different segments that I've helped create. Also, we have a newsletter. It's called uh, the it's called the Total Ninety or not the Total Ninety. Uh, <laughs> the name of the newsletter. Yeah, I'm just filing a lawsuit forgotten. real right. quick. Sure. It's the full ninety. It's the full ninety uh, newsletter. Full ninety dot which I write. That goes out two times a week. And I, as you have already mentioned, I have uh, recently been invited back to contribute once more to The Athletic, which is very exciting for me. Um, so you can sometimes find some of my stuff at The Athletic Soccer. Well, I do look forward to seeing how the Conrad Extended Media Universe, the CMU, continues to grow. Uh, yes. But for now, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening, and we will talk to you all again very soon. Thank you.